I did want to start a little bit with Thich Nhat Hanh this morning. But before actually talking a little bit more about him, uh, I thought we'd sit a little bit. So I was going to ask Carlita to put up his photo, the one that's been coming up online here and there, to announce. There you go. Look at that. I wonder when that was taken. can look at the picture or you can close your eyes and I'll read you a part of the poem that's behind him. Tomorrow I will continue to be, but you will have to be very attentive to see me. I will be a flower or a leaf. I will be in these forms and I will say hello to you if you are attentive enough. You will recognize me, and you may greet me. I will be very happy. You know, it makes me very happy to read that. So I'll read it one more time. Close your eyes and see what you hear or what you feel. Tomorrow, I will continue to be but you will have to be very attentive to see me. I will be a flower or a leaf. I will be in these forms and I will say hello to you. If you are attentive enough, you'll recognize me and you may greet me. I will be very happy. Let's just take two or three minutes to sit quietly. You can close your eyes or the words will be up there and you can look at them.
I really think we could spend the whole time really just talking about every one of those lines. Each of them is so evocative of uh, his understanding of interbeing, that everything is connected to everything else in webs of ongoing ongoing threads of connections that weave a new world day after day. I love the line, you will have to be very attentive to see me. I really think that in a certain way, that's the whole thing. When we're attentive, we see that it's an amazing world. It's a miraculous world. There are terrible things happening in the world right now. And frightful things like the world is heating up and the weather is getting unbearable in places in the world. And this flu is still carrying on in various ways. All the things that human beings can do something about but can't stop now that they're here. They can ameliorate or they can make differences. It's too late to make the world back to how it was a century ago in its climate. Or, but it's not too late to start to make the world better and habitable for our children and our grandchildren. And to do it with a peaceful and loving heart seems to be the whole of it. Paying very good attention. When I think about Thich Nhat Hanh, I thought what we're doing these days, everybody is telling Thich Nhat Hanh stories about he said this and he wrote that. And uh, uh, my contribution to that can be that uh, I remember meeting, well, being introduced to him. I don't think I met him on that occasion. But I went with friends maybe 40 years ago, a long time ago, um, when he was first in this country and first teaching. And I went to hear him in some auditorium. I remember where I was sitting. I remember where he was on the stage and talking. And one of the things that he said imprinted itself on me. Um, he talked about being a monk in uh, in Vietnam and um, what before the Vietnam hostilities happened and that the order of monks was uh, declared to be not one of the combatants and they were presumably, they were neutral. Their role, he said, the role of his order was to take care when when there were people who were wounded or sick that these order of monks took care of them, but they were not political. They were not on one side or the other. Then he said, notwithstanding that, every once in a while, one of the orders, one of the monks in his order, more than one, would get killed in some crossfire, in some event. And he talked about having to participate in burying a fellow monk, um, a non-combatant. 
And he was a much younger man then. Uh, and he said you needed to have a lot of equanimity to be able to do that, to bury not one friend, but several friends, fellow monks in the order. And that was so impressive to me, that really taking care of means taking care of everybody, including your kin, and to do it without acrimony arising in you, to do it with equanimity. And I thought that is really equanimity. So really, I, that was the, the base on which all my later understandings of Thich Nhat Hanh. I never went to Plum Village. I wish I had. The place that he established, uh, meditation center he established in, uh, um, in France. And I remember now one story that he told, uh, probably at that same event. He talked about um, uh, in Plum Village, where refugees from Vietnam to begin with came to stay. Uh, he had a child staying with him in his cabin or his tent or whatever individual dwellings they all had. Uh, and he had a child who was orphaned, who was staying with him. And uh, he said, the child said to him one day, uh, Uncle, I'm thirsty, and because uh, Uncle is an honorific, uh, so Uncle, I'm thirsty. So he poured him some apple juice, and he said it was the non-filtered apple juice, so it's it's dense, you can't see through it. And he poured it out from the bottle, and it was in a glass on the table. And the child said, "Ugh, I don't like the look of that." And then he uh, went out to play for a while, and when he came back. The uh, apple juice had settled down as unfiltered apple juice will, and the denser part went down to the bottom, and the top of it was clear. And he said, "Oh, then the child picked it up and drank it. He said, "Oh, uncle, this is very good." And then he said, "When you sit and meditate all the time, uncle, is that what happens in you when you sit down and meditate?" And I remember that that's the two stories I remembered my whole life of that on. The apple juice story and the burying his friends with equanimity. They were enough for me to have tremendous regard for him. And he died at 95. The story that I read to you last week, maybe some people were not here, was a story that I read in Lion's Roar magazine written by uh, Joan Halifax Roshi. And Joan said that uh, she she met him when he came first came. Uh, it, it, she said that the war in Vietnam was raging, and many of us, as was so many of us young Americans, uh, we were meeting a frontier of consciousness that focused on freedom, the environment, justice, nonviolence. Yet for many of us, our sense of moral outrage towards the government was anything but not violent. You might notice sometimes these days, maybe, depending on, that you have moral outrage at some of the things that are happening. In the midst of this wild psychosocial tangle arrived a young Buddhist monk who traveled from France to the United States to urge our country to stop bombing his country, Vietnam. 
During his time in New York City, he joined the vast peace march down Fifth Avenue, where, I recall, he did something very curious. While thousands pressed forward anxiously and quickly, he walked extremely slowly and mindfully, causing great consternation to the police and the many people who did not understand what he was doing. And I just, I, I love that image of him. That it's, you know, it's an emergency, so slow down and go carefully and think it over and pay attention. I think it's such a, um, it's such an image that sometimes we feel, oh, I have to do something, I have to do something. And I have a sense that what that, what that gesture of walk slowly and carefully is in the middle of tumult in your mind. Step carefully, pay very good attention. Don't hurt yourself and don't hurt anybody else. Don't make things worse. My friend Tony Bernhardt, who's a um, Buddhist teacher, many of you have studied with Tony. And Tony's rendition of the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha's understanding of the cause and the end of suffering are, are four things. And his four things are uh, pain, life comes with pain and difficulty. We make it worse because of the habits of our mind. We don't have to make it worse. Peace is possible. And the fourth noble truth, there are ways to train the mind to that peacefulness. And Tony has been teaching about that those four noble truths in the vernacular are easy words to understand. Not so easy to do, but easy to understand for a, a, a while and all over the place. But he's recently said, uh, when he came to visit this very class uh, before the pandemic. So uh, in real life, it's Burak. And I remember him saying about, talking about the Four Noble Truths, he said, there's only really one noble truth. And the noble truth is, don't make things worse. I really think that's so good, you know. It, it assumes life is difficult and challenging for everybody. And we're just event to event, challenge to challenge. We're trying to figure out what should I do now? And the fourth noble truth, of course, is to pay attention in the various ways that we can pay attention. But it doesn't say that if you do all that, you won't have pain and difficulty, that pain and difficulty come with life. I'm I'm really interested and, and touched that we've all shared the pain and difficulty of this pandemic worldwide. Every place has a pandemic. And, and still, I hear people now saying, I'm losing my patience with this pandemic, as if the pandemic cares that any one of us is losing our patience. They say, oh dear, they're losing patience. I'll have to end myself now. <laughs> There are things that happen that uh, we have to develop the patience for because it's in charge, not us. The pandemic is in charge of itself. We can help it by getting vaccinated and all those things and, and doing all the things that we're doing, sequestering ourselves and being really careful with ourselves. And it will end like everything ends. I, I didn't know, but we don't know when. But it's, you know, it's touching for people to say, I'm losing my patience. 
like the only alternative to losing your patience is not losing your patience. The, the pandemic is going to go on. And that that's really what's the story of the whole of life. Challenges arise. This happens and that happens. In a way, I think that the awareness that we're not in charge and things happen is really the bedrock understanding for the development of compassion. We understand that things happen. Some of them we can respond to and ameliorate or change, but some of them we can't. And that that's true for everybody, that we are all born into uh, vulnerability. I wanted to read you something that Thich Nhat Hanh said. We need a real awakening, a real enlightenment. New laws and new policies are not enough. We need enough. We need to change our way of thinking and seeing things. It's my conviction that we cannot change the world if we're not able to change our way of thinking, our consciousness. When we ourselves suffer less, we can be more helpful and we can help others to change themselves too. We must first learn the art of happiness, how to be truly present for life so we can get the nourishment and healing that we need. You know, when um, Carlita put up that fragment from Thich Nhat Hanh, as we said, and he said, I'm right there in the trees and the leaves and whatever it is. It's such a um, a transmission when I read that, that I will, I'll be there tomorrow in a new form. Uh, someone once said to me about, in some, in some maybe course about grieving or death or dying, they said life ends, uh, death ends a life, not a relationship. And I think in the largest sense, because when people are gone from our lives, because they die, they're not gone from our minds, and they're not gone from our memories, and they're not gone from our habits and our ways of thinking. And um, they show up through through the way that they lived in our minds and our hearts. You know, uh, in, in early Buddhism, with some of the some of the, the the thinking of the earliest Buddhist thinking is um, to really renounce the world. And one of the really alarming uh, kind of thoughts that the that you can find a quote of the Buddha saying is everything that is dear to you causes pain. You think, whoa! I remember thinking as a young teacher, I don't want to teach that to people. Because that's so that's so dreary sounding that every it's actually true that everything that is dear to us we are then vulnerable to losing and that's that makes us more dear and them more dear and things more dear because we really feel connected to them the word is attached you say I was really attached to that person like it's a bad thing but I think attached to somebody means alive and really connected. That's really what I think it means. You can be attached in a in a painful way or in a way that causes pain, but in a way that isn't healthy. 
but to want to be in love with someone and to, you think about all the people who are looking to meet somebody to love and on this on on this platform on that platform and wanting to have families because they want someone to love all the things we do because we want somebody to love and then we love them and then we feel bad if something happens to them i think that that's really the essential part of developing compassion in, in really that when once one realizes how dearly uh, the loss of somebody is felt you think to yourself wow everybody else in a life has this same thing everybody is in this vulnerable position i wonder how many of you um grew up in a tradition where people said things like um god willing i'll see you on sunday it's kind of like a a uh knock wood i'll be there or god willing in the creek don't rise i'll be there do you ever, anybody know that one god willing in the creek don't rise uh that nothing may let inshallah means that same thing if it's a wish of allah but as ratashem means if it's god's will and there are all ways of saying i'm not in charge and uh say well i don't want to say that because i don't believe in super beings or whatever i do believe in the vulnerability of all living things and and the fact that in our lives we're going to lose people who are dear to us and that's the way it is and uh, i was just telling somebody yesterday the story about uh the zen master whose child uh dies and who is bereft and is wailing and crying and his students come to talk to him and they say you know you taught us that death is all right because you know that's how it is anything that's born dies and uh they uh, everything changes form and it's different forms and you really taught us that it's all right and that's true that everything that is created everything that arises passes away and here you are all bereft and as the master says it's true everything that arises passes away and i'm very sad it does not preclude being sad does not preclude sorrow does not preclude missing that person and that awareness to the degree we have love that thing is the degree that we can love other people because i think that's the I think that's the operative thing in being able to express compassion for other people. You realize, wow, they're just like me. I always as the week goes by and I'm thinking about what I want to talk about, I save snippets of things that people say or I read um I had a whole bunch of them that I was going to tell you today but I rather tell you just one of them and I don't know who said this in the course of the last few days I I I copied out something from Howard Thurman and something from Mordechai Kaplan and a few other really wonderful things like the one from Tignat Han today uh 
And somebody who I didn't write down who said it, said tenderness is love expressed privately and justice is love expressed publicly. What do you think? Do you like that? I really like that. Tenderness is love expressed privately and justice is love expressed publicly. I don't know, think about it. I like that very much. I thought that we might, as a way of interspersing meditation this morning, periods of contemplation with periods of didactic teaching, uh, that we might really examine contemplatively, not just by hearing about them, contemplatively the Brahma Viharas. Who knows what a Brahma Vihara is? You can just put your hand up and I'll see. Not so many people. Okay, good. Terrific. It's terrific if you know, and it's terrific if you don't know. Let's look at the next group of people. Who knows? You know, there's a... There's an old Zen story. I think it's a Zen story. Or it's a Nasruddin story. Some old story that my teachers used to tell. That I just thought of. <laughs> because I'm, so I'm not just looking peculiar, laughing away. A group, uh, a teacher comes, uh, a noted teacher comes to a village. And all the villagers come out to hear that teacher teach. And um, the teacher says, oh, villagers, who here knows what I'm going to teach? And everybody says, we don't, we don't, we don't. Obviously, that's why they're looking forward to it. And the teacher says, you know, if nobody here knows, you're not at all ready for my teachings. And he leaves. Comes back another time and he says, oh, villagers. Who here has an idea about what I'm going to teach about? They said, we do, we do, we do. He said, no, then I'm leaving because if you already know what I have to teach you. Comes back a third time and he says, oh, villagers, who here knows what I'm going to teach? And they said, some of us do and some of us don't. And the end of that story is the teacher goes away. He says, well, then those of you who know should tell those of you who don't know. And that's some sort of an old Nasruddin story or one of those stories. But we tell the same stories. I tell the same stories all the time because they continually instruct. And then I get a story better on the hundredth telling than on the first. Certainly some of the things that 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 stay in the consciousness for years and years. I was going to ask you about that. We'll see if we have time in the end. I was thinking about things that people said just once, like Thich Nhat Hanh told that story about the apple juice and about burying his friends probably 40 years ago. It was probably in the 1980s. And I didn't meet him again since then. But they stayed in my mind. And I'm very interested in what it is that stays in your mind for 30 or 40 years, not even just from Thich Nhat Hanh, but
but from other people. I'll, I'll, maybe I'll have a time to tell you later on today after we meditate some of the things that stayed in my mind forever that somebody told me once. What I want most to talk about today is equanimity and its correlates. Uh, the, the, um, the possibilities for the mind that has developed equanimity. And starting with equanimity. By the way, do you know that the four resonance buildings at Spirit Rock are named Metta, Karuna, uh, Mudita, and Upeka? Do you know that? Maybe not. That means loving kindness, compassion, empathic joy, and equanimity. Those are the four exalted states that the Buddha said people like you and I could develop. And that those states had a way of expanding themselves like happiness and fill up your whole mind. And they're called Brahma Viharas because a Vihara in the language of that time meant a place to live when people went to stay at Bodhgaya or in some particular town. They would say, I, I was traveling, so I stayed in the Buddhist Vihara or the Vipassana Vihara or I stayed in the Tibetan Vihara. That it means a dwelling place. It just means a place to live. And Brahma is the name for the highest kinds of gods in the Brahma religion, which is out of which the Buddha came. And the Brahma means exalted or a wonderful or godlike or divine. So it's like a divine house, a divine place to live. And they and these four states that I want to talk about are loving kindness, a mind filled with goodwill, compassion, a mind filled, responsive, ready to meet every situation with what do you need, what can I give you? A mind that's prepared to celebrate with other people their good fortune, and a mind that fundamentally is so grounded in its own equanimity that it's unshakable. I love the phrase unshakable equanimity. I don't have it. I have shakable equanimity, but I sometimes have a good, a lot of equanimity. I have more than I used to have. I, I tell my friend Jack Cornfield sometimes when we're just visiting or whenever, once a decade it comes up for me to remind him that when I was an early student of his 40 years ago, he was, he is younger than I by 10 years. And when we met, he wasn't uh, married. He didn't have a child. Uh, he was really a, just a, a newly, uh, not um, post-monk days. And I was um, a married woman with four children and uh, a full-time work as a as a psychiatric social worker. So we were in different uh, places along the uh, path of a life's work. But I, the one, the one thing that I, I mean, he's clever and he's a wonderful teacher and 
brilliant and all of that. But I said to him, you know, the reason I really uh, have tremendous respect for you is I think you have a lot of equanimity, and I would like to have a lot of equanimity. Do you really have a lot of equanimity? Imagine saying that to Jack. I said, I remember, I remember exactly where we were sitting when I said that. I said, do you really have a lot of equanimity? And he thought about it. He said, I think I do. So I think he does too. So <laughs> Uh, I don't think we either of us have unshakable, but maybe his is less shakable than mine. But I, I tend to think that the the, uh, the shakeability quotient of maybe I'm making this up, you know, the shakeability quotient of everybody's equanimity is um, directly related to how many people in their immediate family and uh, their next to immediate family. Um, I once was teaching someplace, someplace, you know, I don't know, someplace where in another, not at Spirit Rock, in the days when you went to other places to teach, where my reputation had uh, often precedes you because people put up a sign, so the Wurstein's going to teach at this in this bookstore tonight. And then people come to the bookstore and they presumably buy your book and you give a talk. And somebody asked a question at one of those and they said, um, how does it feel to have uh, equanimity all of the time? So I said, I wish I knew. <laughs> I said, and I followed that by saying I could be in the best state of ease, my mind at ease, everything's okay, equanimity. And the phone rings, ring, ring, and you pick it up, and someone says, hello, Ma, and it's not the right tone of voice of the Ma, and you know that something's not good, and my whole equanimity is not good. Anybody has that here? Pick up the phone, someone says, hello, Ma, and you know it's not good. You have equanimity at that point? Oh. <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> It says how many people raised hand. We'll check on that later on. Um, but I have more equanimity, and I am convinced that what I that equanimity is really what I really need to be more and more developing. Because that's why that story about Thich Nhat Hanh walking slowly in that uh, anti-war rally against the push of, uh-oh, get up, get excited, wave, carry on, is because when you're all excited and the mind is filled with probably anger and rancor and bitterness, you can't see clearly that only if I settle down and let my mind settle and figure out, wow, this is happening, what could I do now? I'm not saying that people should have rallies where they didn't say anything. Rallies have to be rallies, but... But I love that image of Thich Nhat Hanh walking slowly in it. I love the stories of people who, when you ask them a disarming question, say, wait a minute, to think about that for a minute, instead of just saying what they think. Think it over. I tell myself when I have, when my equanimity is shaking, I say, wait a minute, this is upsetting. Take a breath, let's figure out what to do. We'll figure it out, figure it out. 
My friend Joseph Goldstein has said on many occasions where I heard him teaching, he said, my favorite mantra is, it's going to be okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's a soothing mantra. doesn't mean everything's going to come out all right. It means you'll figure it out. You'll figure it out. You'll figure it out. So far in our lives, we all figured out. So far in our lives, we all had losses that we lamented. We all had sadnesses. If you talk to somebody more than five minutes or ten minutes, you find out pretty soon that vulnerability is a shared thing and that the, 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 the uh, insight is that when we realize that everybody has shared vulnerability, we lower our, so to speak, metaphorically, we lower our voice. And I, I, I told um, Carlita before we started that I wanted to call today's talk tenderness and a tribute to Thich Nhat Hanh, because I think tenderness is what happens when we realize that everyone is vulnerable. I always have the same metaphor in my mind, the same image in my mind, and the image is of walking down a hall in a uh, in a hospital, down the down the corridor where people are in uh, the just outside of intensive care. That the people in the intensive care are usually near each other in a ward at the end of that and in individual rooms are the people just barely needing to be in there or just barely out of there and that around each person in each room if you look down if you're going to visit someone down this long corridor if you look in this room or this room there's a community of people around the bed and they're talking to the person or trying to you realize in each room there are people who love that person in the bed and want for them to be comfortable and okay. Who had that experience ever? You go visit somebody, your own parent in that sort of a situation where everybody is grouped around them and everybody cares about them. And what I realize when I do that is that every, that the world is just a bigger view of everybody in it who has people that they care about and people that they love. And the the operative thing that needs to happen for this planet to save itself is for people to just take out the walls between the rooms so that everybody's people become your people. I hope that works. I hope that's not too gloomy. You know, the last place that I went to visit somebody in that situation was up in Sonoma County, an hour north of Nile where I am. person I knew was really in the intensive care. And I spent some time with her. And then I came back and I realized when I got to the elevator that the intensive care was one corridor down this hospital. And the elevator served that. And the elevator had another corridor which went down to labor and delivery. So as I am approaching the elevator, here comes a, a new mother in a wheelchair getting wheel because they wheel you out with her baby and with balloons tied on a wheelchair and getting in the elevator with me who have just been who has just been down this other corridor where people are going out and people are coming in 
And it's one of those moments that stays in my mind that I remember. It's not so recent that, but I remember who it was that I was visiting. And I remember coming down and feeling so burdened. My, my friend was dying. She, in fact, she died. But there was people coming down from the other road. I thought that's how it is. And just knowing this is the way it is. The equanimity meditation says everyone is heir to their own karma, which I don't like very much because it sounds like uh, you got your just desserts or something or other. I, I don't think it means that at all. I think that everybody is the culmination of everything that ever happened, who their parents were, who their grandparents were, the city they were born, the people they went to school with. All of that makes them into the person they are in the level of health that they are, that we are what we are because we couldn't be other. I see that. The more clearly I see that, the less angry I get at people who have other views than I do. Because I realize they can't be other. Should we do a meditation on... Um, yeah, we'll do that. that. We'll... St- how about we'll start? We're going to start with a, a loving kindness meditation because traditionally one does. We could start with an equanimity meditation, but let's leave that for the last. Now that I'm thinking about it, we'll start with a loving kindness and we'll go to compassion and then we'll go to empathic joy. And then we'll go to equanimity because it'll be the same as like having a regular life and then going to visit your friend in the uh, ICU and then meeting a person with a new baby with balloons by the elevator and then saying it's all part of life. That's really, that'll be the, I just made that up, so I hope it works. But let's start with ourselves and sitting because there's been a lot of talking. Look at all these people. We'll do this first. Look at all the people. Take a minute to look at the people on all the pages. Look at these people and these people. And these people. These people. There we are. All right. So we could pretend that we're sitting in a big room with all of them. They all look a little bit familiar because we've been seeing them online. (laughs) By the magic of video, then. Sit in a comfortable way. I hope that seeing all those people picked up your mood, if it was pick upable. Thich Nhat Hanh, in honor of Thich Nhat Hanh, the first thing we should do is smile. I forgot, this was the third story I heard from him. So wait, 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 not meditating yet. 
telling you the third Thich Nhat Hanh story that I remember from the one incident from 40 years ago, told about burying his colleagues, told about the apple juice, and he also told about his advice, his instruction to meditators to smile. And he said that he's been challenged by people in his groups that he teaches in his classes. And somebody afterwards will say, I didn't like it that you said to smile. What if I'm not happy? And he said, I told that person, I didn't tell you to be happy. I just told you to smile. And if you smile, you might, first of all, your face relaxes when you smile. And if you smile and you feel your face relax, it might remind you that in your life you have been happy. It's been a time that you've been happy. And if you were in your life sometimes happy, that it might happen again, that things come and go. Oh, Leslie just sent me a text. <laughs> That's fine, Leslie, because I would have forgotten to say that. Even you had an instruction not to send me a text, <laughs> but you did. And the text is, uh, he used to teach it this way. He'd say, breathing in, I calm my body. Breathing out, I smile. So in honor of the late venerable Thich Nhat Hanh, Let's begin by closing our eyes. Holding your body in a dignified way and breathing in and out. Of course, if you can't sit and you have back troubles, then lie down or whatever or stand up. But if you can sit, sit up and think to yourself as breath moves in and out. Breathing in, I calm my body. And breathing out, I smile. And do that. You can do it on every breath in and out. You can do it on every second breath in and out. Do it in and out. You get tired of smiling. Relax. But if you then smile again, you'll notice that it picks up your mind.
I'm hopeful that a few minutes of relaxing the body and smiling has relaxed your mind a little bit. To whatever degree it's relaxed your mind. I think it makes um, makes the mind aware of how much better it feels that there's a happier way to be when the mind is relaxed. It's just a pleasure for it not to be so busy. And if you're well, if you're not ill at this moment, if you're not in pain, or even if you are in pain with something, if you're not in pain, the awareness, this is wonderful to be not in pain, brings up the wish, may I continue to be at ease, may I continue to be content. If there is something difficult in your body or in your mind, thinking, may I be at ease? May I feel better? May I relax around this difficulty in my mind? May I hold my body with love? May I take care of myself happily. I love that line. It's a line out of the original Polychance. May I take care of myself happily. We'll sit for a few minutes. Wishing anything specific for yourself that your body needs for its body, for the body to feel comfortable, for the mind to feel comfortable, for ease around whatever doesn't feel comfortable. Mostly, may I take care of myself happily. Anyone who feels genuinely content cannot wish ill on anyone else. Think to yourself of someone, bring to mind someone whom you love enormously category of best beloved you may have several pick one to start best beloved person 
and wish them well. May you take care of yourself happily. Whatever phrases come to mind, may your mind be at ease, may you be comfortable in your body, may you take care of yourself happily. Think of another person who you love a lot, a good friend. And wish it for them, too. Sometimes I think my mind is getting crowded with people. But the mind, my friend Sharon says, is as wide as the world. You can put the whole world of people in it. So put another person in and wish them well. with any phrases of goodwill that you want. May you be healthy, may you be comfortable. Invite in a few more people, maybe one at a time. Maybe someone who's not in your immediate family. I like to think about people who I recognize, who I pass, who I know, but aren't people that I think about all the time, like my dentist or the person who cuts my hair. I find that it um, excites my mind to let familiar place people, but not so close to me, into my mind. I usually realize how I feel about them more. I feel more either kindly disposed to them to begin with, or more kindly disposed to them after I wish them well.
think about all the people who live in your city, wherever you are. May they be well. May they feel content. May they have enough to eat. May they have health care. May they have jobs if they need them. One of the things that happens if you include into your mind as many as people in your city and not to speak of people in your world who are not well in their bodies or don't have all that, those comforts of good health or enough to eat or safe housing. It brings up a certain tenderness that's different from people who you know are well. I know that it does in me. That if I allow my mind to include people near and far who may be in a more difficult situation, then I wish them well, of course, but it brings a certain amount of um, poignancy into my mind and tenderness. since I know that there are people who don't have that. It's a different feeling than wishing well to people I know and love who are well. My own sense is that compassion is a uh, an element of all, all love. Compassion for people who have specific needs and pains. And compassion for people who who don't. For everyone who shares with us vulnerability of having people we love, whose pain would be painful to us. It brings up in me a certain tenderness for the world. And I imagine for you as well.
whenever I'm doing this kind of meditation, if I feel a little bit overwhelmed by it, I give my mind a, um, I, um, a chance to catch up with itself by saying to myself, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. You can always continue with that as your meditation line or can think about someone who in this in your life, someone you know about, who at this moment is having some great moment of pleasure or success or good news. Someone whom you can rejoice for. Someone who's just fallen in love. Someone who's had their novel accepted for publication. Someone who's just given birth to a new baby. Someone who you don't even know personally, but you heard about. There's a different quality to knowing about and rejoicing for someone who has done something extraordinary. The heart or the mind that's not grounded in peacefulness is sometimes envious or jealous or but the heart that rejoices in other people's good fortune exalts itself. The classic teachings about joy at other people's success point out that in a heart and a mind that's filled with wisdom, there's the understanding that success is fleeting, just as everything is fleeting. So in the moment, to enjoy someone else's success. can be a pleasure. It's that person's turn, not mine. For the next three minutes, take a long breath in and out.
and let your mind rest in whatever supports its equanimity. Everything that arises passes away. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. Whatever you'd like to say to yourself that supports a mind of benevolent balance. And the last minute, open your eyes and look around at all the people in all their houses. That was a lot of stuff to think about and ask about. Before we start asking, think about what you'd like to ask, but also look at each of the pages of people and wish for everyone something good for today. You know, a fancy name for a wish is a blessing. It's all, it's all blessings. If you start a sentence with may you, <laughs> it becomes a blessing. May you feel peaceful and happy. And the thing is that blessing people makes them feel good. And it makes, well, makes you feel good. Thank you very much for all coming. And uh, we'll see each other. Well, we might see each other at Sharon and myself on Friday night and Saturday. Otherwise, we'll see each other on the 23rd of February. So, be well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.